scripture reading today is from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Is that one okay? I'll try and get closer. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to promote the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm grateful to God, whom I serve with a good conscience, as my ancestors did. I constantly remember you in my prayers, day and night. When I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I can be filled with happiness. I'm reminded of your authentic faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm sure that this faith is also inside you. Because of this, I'm reminding you to revive God's gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. God didn't give us a spirit that is timid, but one that is powerful, loving, and self-controlled. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share the suffering for the good news, depending on God's power. God is the one who saved and called us with a holy calling. This wasn't based on what we have done, but it was based on his own purpose and grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now his grace is revealed through the appearance of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality into clear focus through the good news. I was appointed a messenger, apostle and teacher of this good news. This is also why I'm suffering the way I do, but I'm not ashamed. I know the one in whom I've placed my trust. I'm convinced that God is powerful enough to protect what he has placed in my trust until that day. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Protect this good thing that has been placed in your trust through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good morning, friends. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as your senior pastor here at City Church San Francisco. Welcome to our friends who are also online. Uh, If you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she, her, and hers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this morning to worship together, to enter into um, a sense of community, of connection, of understanding that we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So as we turn our hearts and our minds to what it is that you might have to say to us today, we ask God that you would clear away those things that clutter our minds, that we might be fully present to receive what it is that you want to do within us, speak to us, and do through us. Speak through me because of me and also in spite of me that your word might be heard clearly and that we might leave this space transformed for your purposes in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Earlier this week, I was reading an article that someone shared with me about uh, what a bad year tech has been having. From cryptocurrency Ponzi schemes to fraudulent medical research uh, to cover-ups in self-driving car collisions. The famous Silicon Valley adage of move fast and break things has led to, well, a lot of broken things. Lives, trust, health. Failing fast might be a solid approach when you're working out issues and trying to refine ideas, but once pe real people are impacted, what one circle might see as just another iteration, another might experience as the catastrophic moment in their lives when everything fell apart. Trust is one of those things get, that can take a long time to build, but just a moment to ruin. When trust is strong, we can do incredible things together, but when it is weak, we easily become suspicious, self-protective, and insular. We don't know exactly what happened that prompted this letter to young Timothy, a young leader in the growing movement of folks who had been transformed by the message of Jesus, but what we do know is that he hit a wall. He was not just feeling discouraged, he had lost trust that the faith he had been raised in was worth living. He was withdrawn, he had stopped using his gifts altogether. Maybe he was afraid, or maybe he was depressed, or probably a little bit of both, really. After all, this was a time when nobody really liked Christians all that much. They were bringing people who shouldn't be in relationship together. They were violating long-held religious convictions about what was acceptable and what wasn't, even threatening many of the values that shaped business and wealth creation. Nobody liked them, and everyone wanted them gone. So while the specifics of Timothy's pain aren't clear to us, I think most of us wouldn't blame him if he just was tired of everything being so hard. He had his whole life ahead of him, and if past behavior is a predictor of future performance, there wasn't a lot to look forward to. Better just to put your head down, blend in, and try not to get noticed. But then here comes Paul, or as many scholars would say, someone like Paul. And unlike a lot of Paul's letter, he's not here to call Timothy out. He's not accusing him of shirking his responsibilities or trying to argue him back into leadership. No, instead he reaches out through the letter to put an arm around this young man's shoulders. He reflects on his own journey, the self-doubt, the grief, the loss. It's all there. And so laying down any argument or call to action that he might make, Paul sits down and takes a deep breath. I'm grateful to God, he says, that even though my faith looks different from my Jewish ancestors, I serve and follow with a good conscience. In other words, even though my faith as a traveling, church-planting, multiple-job-holding, troublemaking Christian, even though it looks radically different from the prominent, devout Jewish family that I came from, this faith I have, it didn't start with me. My faith is one that has been shaped, nurtured, and nourished by the very folks who would probably accuse me of corrupting it. But I know, even though it looks different, it is because of them that I am who I am today. And so I'm grateful to them, even if they wouldn't feel the same. And I know the same is for, true for you. I knew your grandmother, Lois. There was not a woman I can think of who was more steady and solid in the convictions of why it was worth it to follow Jesus. And your mother, Eunice, she inherited the same faith, the courage I've seen her exercise, the steadiness and faithfulness that she embodies. Well, 
Sometimes it has helped me to get through my worst days, knowing that I've got people like her pulling with me. Timothy, you've got that same spiritual blood running through your veins. You don't see it, but I do. These women, they've given you something incredibly precious, something that is not quickly built, but can easily fall into disrepair. This legacy you have, it is something that you must work hard to protect and cultivate. And that's why you must tend to it, revive it, and build on it. What Paul means is not just that Timothy's faith matters because his faith matters. That's true, but it isn't the whole truth. Timothy's faith matters because of what it can mean for those who will come after him. Timothy has inherited a legacy of faith that can be lost or carried forward. And so Paul is asking him what he wants his legacy to be. And this question, what kind of legacy do you want? That's the question we're exploring today. Each of us are allotted a finite time in which to live our lives. And what we do with that time, the sum of our activities, the stewardship of our gifts, and the contributions we make, all of these determine the quality of the legacy we leave behind. Each of us is here because of someone else's legacy, making it possible for City Church to exist, sure, but also the faith of, uh, which we proclaim and the way we embody it. All of it is the sum of the faithful, and to be honest, maybe a little bit less than faithful sometimes, efforts of those who did the work of showing up. They showed up, maybe even when they didn't want to, of pouring out, maybe when they felt like they had nothing left to give, of trusting even when they felt like they couldn't put one foot in front of the other, that God would do something with their efforts. The kind of legacy that we're talking about today and that Paul is talking about with Timothy is less about how to maximize your retirement savings than it is about whether or not we are cultivating and increasing our spiritual and intellectual wealth for those who will come after us. It's about digging a deep well of resources that folks can draw from so that we can meet this moment and the next with courage, with wisdom, and with the guiding light and grace of God's gospel promise of wholeness of life for all. This is the kind of legacy that Timothy has received. It's the kind of legacy even that we have received by virtue of being in this space. And so our question for today is, what kind of legacy do you want? And how are you working toward it? What are you doing to steward the gifts that you possess so that the next generation can not only benefit from them, but build on them? But perhaps the question, there's a question even before that one. Are you even thinking about it? <laughs> a couple of months ago, I read about a judge that ruled in favor of youth, ages 5 through 22, who had filed a lawsuit against the state of Montana for its failure to consider climate change when approving fossil fuel projects. Now, if you look past the novelty of the lawsuit like this, um, you will see something really kind of incredibly sad. What these young people were doing was suing for someone, anyone, to care about their future. The author and poet James Baldwin once warned that we must be careful of how we live because our decisions leave a tab on which our children must make good. Well, those young people were watching the numbers go up, looked around, and saw that no one seemed to notice or maybe even care. 
And what they learned was not only that those entrusted with the sacred task of stewarding the future had completely relinquished their responsibility. What they were also being taught is that short-term gains are more important than long-term investments. And these young people, brilliant and wise, decided that, well, if no one's going to stand up for us, we'll stand up for ourselves. And so they followed, filed a lawsuit. And what the lawsuit represented is so much more than climate care. It re represented, I think, a tragic breakdown in connection, concern, and commitment to one another. And so I'll ask again, what kind of legacy do you want? Look at how you're living your life. This is what you're passing on. This is what you are teaching your children. They are watching and they are learning from you and from us. What our passage is saying is that the strength of our tomorrow is dependent on the quality of our faith and how we embody it today. Our children's faith, not just what they believe, but how they believe, is dependent on the cultivation of our faith. Studies have shown that a child's faith is directly correlated to the quality of the faith they observe in their parents. So, you know, have fun, parents, right? And of course, uh, for those of you who are thinking you're off the hook because you don't have any kids, think again. Because of course, the family of God is much bigger, much broader, and much more beautiful than biological, adoptive, or fostering connections. Through baptism, and by virtue of the promises that we as a community make, think again at the next baptism, people, right? Um, these children, the children of the church universal, they are our children. And so we're all obligated to cultivate our faith, if only for the sake of their faith. Barbara, our children's ministry director, her goal is to have the children encounter at least five people in the church who are not related to them that know their name. Because that too has been correlated to a sense of belonging, of being known in their faith communities. You matter, whether you claim to have children or not. I'll let that sort of sit where it is. But this is the beauty of what it means to be part of God's family. And so as we consider what it means to be interconnected at this moment in history, this question of legacy is at a particularly pivotal moment. So we're in the second week of our series about what it means to have an intelligent faith in a world that is being powerfully reshaped by developments in artificial intelligence. Now, over the course of listening, reading, and learning about where things stand at this moment, what's become clear to me is that the folks who are closest to the work are not so much concerned about sentient robots who will take over the world and plug us into the matrix. No, they are concerned about humans, about what we will do with this technology. Of course, there are the low-level infractions um, that we're already seeing, right? Students submitting papers that were written by AI, and I've, I've got some professor friends who are like, um, you're not that articulate. <laughs> so it's very easy for them to tell. And while this might be frustrating and maybe even a little bit concerning, what really sets technologists on edge right now is how there is a not-so-distant possibility that someone could gain access to incredibly complex and sensitive information that could lead to mass destruction. It's one thing to know how to build nuclear weapons after having spent years in science, politics, or even the military, working alongside, debating with, and learning from peers in the field. Over that time, you gain a sense of the scope of the impact. You engage in the philosophical and moral questions that have to be negotiated 
and all of these slow your roll when it comes to nuclear proliferation. Compare that to an authoritarian regime or a radicalized body that now has access to the same information. No, those who are closest to the work aren't concerned about plagiarism or even weird art generated by AI. They are concerned about the potential decimation of 15% of the world's population. That's a heavy thought, isn't it? But what does all of this have to do with being a Christian, right? I've heard a comment here or there wondering why we're talking about AI in the church. I mean, where is Jesus in all of this? Well, the short answer is that we need to be part of the conversations that are shaping this technology, not for power or prominence, but for life-giving influence. It's true. Jesus never talked about algorithms or facial recognition. But, well, he did talk about voice recognition, didn't he? He talked about becoming so familiar with the shepherd's voice that it might guide us, even when we find ourselves in new terrain, facing complex circumstances or navigating life events. It is this voice which enables us to draw from deep wells that help us to put our faith in action on this day, in this age, amidst whatever circumstances we may find ourselves facing, to help us think critically and creatively, sharing the wisdom we have gained as we consider how to faithfully bear witness in our world at this time. What does technology have to do with Christianity? A lot actually. And I'm not talking only about the invention of the printing press, a world-changing technology which put a Bible in the hand of anyone who wanted one. It turned out that the printing press's ability to print all manner of media and message could strengthen or degrade someone's faith. Thoughts and ideas were no longer exclusively curated by church leaders. Anyone with a bit of ink and a few thoughts to share uh, could do so. Suddenly, the single interpretation wasn't going to suffice. And Christians had to build a bigger container in which to hold the flood of multiple truths that emerged. And because folks did not have a faith that was resilient enough to meet rapidly changing circumstances, many people died. That's church history right there. No, Jesus didn't talk about the printing press either, actually. But it radically changed people's experience of him and his church. And so it, do, it would do us well to think things through, not just for ourselves, but for the broader world that we live in and the ones who will inherit it. How we bear witness to our faith just might make a difference for the ways in which today's technology is iterated on tomorrow. As Paul reminded Timothy of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, he also was calling on him and calling on us, in fact, today to activate the faith he had inherited in the calendar of the church today is called All Souls or All Saints Day, Sunday. And it's a day when we take time to remember and honor those ancestors in the faith who came before us. We take time to celebrate the people that they were, the legacies they left behind, and draw strength from their faith as we seek to embody ours. And so today, as we celebrate, we also have a decision. How will we build on what we have received through our ancestors in the faith? How will you bear witness to God's grace revealed through Jesus Christ in your life? It will not be easy, Paul promises us. It comes at a cost. There may be suffering, humiliation, or even fear. It looks different today than it did in ancient Rome, but regardless, there is always a price for exercising our gifts for God's purposes. And this is why we remember 
those ancestors who came before us, to draw strength on their courage and faithfulness when we experience ours waning. The world needs the resources of our faith tradition now more than ever. People are lost, and I mean that in the most cheesy way and also the most seriously true way. People are lost. They are overwhelmed by despair. They are sinking into depression. They are grappling with suicidal ideation. Let's not pretend that it's not true. People are lost, and we have something that just might help them feel found. And so we need it, and we must protect it. And I'm not talking about locking it up so that it will never be touched or never change. I'm talking about exercising it, strengthening it, and building on it so that it is resilient enough to meet the questions of today while being prepared for the demands of tomorrow. Instead of moving fast and breaking things, let's join our ancestors in the faith to act purposefully and fix things. Today and in the days ahead, God is inviting us to participate in a legacy of faithful resilience, not only so that we are strengthened for the work of today, but that we might also be catalysts towards God's promise of a bright hope for tomorrow. Come and be part of that bright hope. Come and be part of bringing God's promises just a little closer for the ones who come after us, for the sake of our ancestors, for ourselves, and for the ones who will inherit the legacy that carry it forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our ancestors in the faith that they brought us this far. And we know, God, that you do not bring us so far that you would turn around and leave us. And so we trust ourselves and trust ourselves to you. We draw from those resources of the lives and saints who came before us, who did just a little bit more so that we could be just a little further ahead. Help us to see what you see, our grand interconnectedness, and help us to have courage as you call us to have courage, that we might speak and act for life in the ways that you invite us to with courage, with joy, and with trust that you go before us. Do with our efforts what only you can do, multiplying them out so that those who come after us might have what they need to meet their day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>